The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily express those held by this station or its advertisers and are strictly the opinions held by those contributing to the show. Welcome to the Eric Little High School Football Podcast, your home for news, discussion, and opinions about high school football in the Mid-Ohio Valley. And now, here's your host, Eric Little. Welcome back inside the Eric Little High School Football Podcast. I am the namesake. Happy to be with you once again this week for the final 2018 edition of the Eric Little High School Football Podcast. Sad to say, but it is the last edition of the year. Thought about doing one about the awards wrap-up, but the awards will speak for themselves. The Kennedy Award will be given out later this year. Metro News has released its last power rankings of the season. Also, they'll release a player of the year this week. There are a lot of deserving candidates, so I'm not going to give out awards. I will, though, later in the program, do a top five stories of the year. We'll also look at the Super Six from this week, most importantly. Martinsburg continues their dominance in Class AAA. Dave Walker is doing some fantastic stuff over in Martinsburg. They've got the state's longest winning streak, 42 consecutive games. That's where they've won at the varsity level, 42 straight. That's the longest winning streak in the state. It's a third straight class AAA championship. R.J. Barrett of Martinsburg blocked his eighth punt of the season for the second quarter. It was recovered for a touchdown, and that's what really allowed Martinsburg to pull away with the game. Spring Valley had a pretty good ball club in quarterback Grayson Malashevich. He had a big year, and Spring Valley was a good team. They just did not have enough for Martinsburg. Like I said, three state titles in a row. Class AAA champs for the seventh time in nine seasons as they pick up a 31-7 win over Spring Valley. We'll get to the AA game quickly before we get into Williamstown and Class A. And the AA game might have been the best game in the Super 6 this weekend. Fairmont Senior was the top-ranked team throughout the year, and they capped that off with a 23-13 win against Bluefield. They started out with a 20-0 lead. Strong first quarter, a good defensive effort. That's Fairmont Senior's first football title since 1946 and the first since the SS C began crowning champions. What's most impressive to me about this is Nick Bardick and his staff have built a tremendous program there. Bardick is my age. I went to college with Nick Bardick. We were in the broadcast sequence together. He was a buddy of a friend of mine. I saw him here and there. I didn't really know him all that well, but he's someone that certainly has made a name for himself in the coaching ranks and has been a proven leader of men 23-13. They win over, over Bluefield in that Class AA final. Wheeling Central used a quick start to hold off Williamstown. They win 44 to 15. Just too many big plays from Wheeling Central. They had just too much firepower. They picked up a 16 to nothing lead before Williamstown halved that with a Donovan Taylor touchdown and a two-point conversion on a pass from Carter Haynes to Nick Bondi. 651 before halftime. Williamstown had to feel pretty good about themselves down just 16 to 8, but the Maroon Knights answered immediately. They took a lead on a Curtis McGee touchdown run with 352 left in the half. And then after that, Jalen Creighton intercepted Carter Haynes. That would be two picks for Creighton. That led to Curtis McGee's 31-yard touchdown pass to Anthony Robbins on the final play of the half, and that's what sent Central into the break with a commanding 30-8 lead. So, how about that? In less than seven minutes, just a little over half the quarter, Williamstown goes from down eight to down 22, and the complexion of the game changed differently. Williamstown did get a score out of the locker room, but it was not enough to put a significant dent in Wheeling Central. Uh, Central, a repeat state champion. They have won now 10 times in Class A since 2000. Mike Young, I believe I read, had seven championships to his name. So just a dominant effort, and I don't think that's one that if you're Williamstown, you look at so much as anything that you did. I think that's something that you look at and say, you know, this was a good Wheeling Central team, and they're in a good run right now. 
right now because they are beatable. That's a beatable program, and that's a program that if you hit them on the right day in the right year, you certainly can win. But this was a dominant team. This was a better team, I think, than last year's team, and they had a lot of experience back. This is not a public school, private school thing. St. Mary's, a public school, played them last year and beat themselves more than Wheeling Central beat them. They had some turnovers at some bad times. They were not good inside the red zone in that game. They were not good on third down in that game. So they could have beaten Wheeling Central last year, and I think this year was a better team that knocked off Williamstown, a more experienced team. But you have to hand it to Williamstown. They played hard through the final whistle. But I think what, unfortunately, might be the legacy of this Yellow Jackets team is that their three losses were in games that, you know, where they, where they played teams that they really wanted to shut up and didn't. You know, they have two losses to Wheeling Central bookending the season, and the loss on opening night, by and large, that game was a lot closer for more of that game than the scoreboard would indicate. But, of course, they've got Doddridge County that people were talking about all season long, and they get Doddridge County to end the regular season, and there's their chance to shut the Doddridge County folks up, and they just couldn't do it. The weather was awful that night. They lost 14-7. to Hunter America was a good back. They didn't really have an answer for Hunter America on defense. He ran them into the ground, and they couldn't do much themselves on a sloppy, nasty night at a sloppy, nasty stadium and a sloppy, nasty surface. So they lose that game. They do have some nice highlights. So they picked up two road wins in the playoffs against Mountain View and Midland Trail after beating Summers County at home. Hosted a playoff game for the first time in a while. Made it to Wheeling Island for the first time since their 2014 championship. But unfortunately, the Yellow Jackets fall short. So again, a good season for Williamstown and a tip of the cap for head coach Terry Smith and the Yellow Jackets on a fine season and all the fine work that they did this year. Depth Chart is the home for Wood County's most in-depth high school sports coverage. Depth Chart goes beyond the game with features that promote the student-athlete throughout the county. The Depth Chart website covers all six Wood County public and private high schools at DepthChartWC.com. Founder and journalist Kerry Patrick is experienced and has covered the Valley for more than a decade. To find out more or to check out six or 12-month subscription rates, go online to DepthChartWC.com. Like Depth Chart on Facebook or follow on Twitter at DepthChartWC. DepthChart, subscription-based online sports coverage that keeps you in the know about the schools you care about. Stay connected with us on Facebook. Like our page, the Eric Little High School Football Podcast. While you're there, answer our weekly poll question and feel free to share your comments or questions. Eric will get to those on a future edition of the show. Let's take a look at this week's poll question. I asked you, should the Super 6 stay in Wheeling or go elsewhere? If it leaves, why and where should it go? 55 of you voted in this. That's a lot higher than I thought it would be, although this is a question that evokes some pretty strong opinions, and it was a pretty straightforward question. 58% of you, though, said move elsewhere. 42% of you said stay in Wheeling. I think the most difficult thing about this issue is the Wheeling isn't the perfect location for the Super 6. It's just not for a lot of reasons. But I don't know that right now we can do better. There really aren't that many good options. There's Charleston that was tried for a long time. Layley Field is still, by and large, considered a special place in the eyes and hearts of many, except those who've actually had to go watch a game there and play there. I don't find anything terribly storied about Layley Field. I think facility-wise, it's on par with Wheeling Island Stadium, if not maybe a little more run down. The turf is brand new. They just replaced that. Uh, more on the field conditions in a bit. They just replaced the scoreboard. I found the lighting kind of dingy the last time I saw a night game at Lately Field, or University of Charleston Stadium, as it's now called. But either way, it's not ideal. It's in a bad neighborhood. There's not a whole lot around it. It's not like the Charleston Civic Center, where it at least has the appeal of being next to the mall, so you can come and go from the basketball to the mall and have somewhere to go and something to do when you want to get away from the game. And Wheeling has that with the casino right there. Parkersburg has been floated around a lot, and I know there are a lot of people in the middle Ohio Valley that would love to 
see the Middle Ohio Valley host this because Parkersburg has the hotels to do it now. That's improved a lot in the last five years. There's entertainment options here. There's a mall, a place to take the kids, the movie theaters. There are things you can do in venues if you want to have nice dinners. And the community would get behind that. That's something that I think the community would do and put on and have as a nice event. The trouble is you just don't have the venue in Parkersburg. You really don't. With Stadium Field being half condemned still, that's its biggest strike. But it's also not in the greatest neighborhood. Plus, what about the parking situation? Not enough places to park for an event of that caliber and that size. It's it's a struggle to park there for even a South PHS basketball game, much less a South PHS football game, much less a state championship game. The locker rooms are fine. The bathrooms are, are, are adequate. Concessions are adequate. There is space to add extra points of sale if that's what you'd want to do. And remember, I mentioned these things because these are considerations that should go into a bid, but they just don't have the parking on site, and it's not in a good neighborhood, and not to mention Stadium Field is half-closed. So then you might say, well, what about Erickson All Sports Facility? I really don't think that we'll ever see the state championship games go back onto grass. And unless there are changes in the way grass is grown and in the way grass is cultivated and, and, and to make that a tougher, more reliable surface, I don't think that's going to happen really for any big game. I think those are going to stay on artificial surfaces as much as you can. The footing's truer. It's a little bit better, especially given West Virginia's late fall, early winter climate. And there doesn't really seem to be a, a push to put artificial turf at Erickson-Hall Sports Facility. And I think that's because they take pride in the fact they've got not only a grass surface, but a nice grass surface. Even so, a nice grass surface can get slick, as we saw a few times late in the Patriots' regular season. So I think it's going to stay on an artificial surface. Plus, there are some things that Erickson-Hall Sports Facility doesn't quite have. It's not all the way done. They just recently got approval to fund another concession stand and bathroom building on the home side of the stadium. Prior to that, you had to walk all the way to one side of the stadium just to go to a permanent concession stand and to go to a block building restroom. That's not ideal for a state championship. For a state championship, you need to have more than enough of all those facilities to house crowds of up to 10, 15,000 people. Parking, they've got an adequate parking area there at Erickson All Sports Facility, although I'm not sure that it's to the level of a state championship. You'd almost have to shuttle some people in maybe, but there's more on-site parking, and it's in a better part of town, a safer part of town at least, than Stadium Field. But again, it has issues as well. People bring up West Virginia University and Marshall University a lot because the way the schedule lines up now, the Big 12 has a championship game, so WVU likely would not be hosting that weekend, whereas Marshall would be problematic because I don't believe the Conference USA has a fixed site right now. I believe it goes to maybe the team with the best record. I'd have to look it up. My problem with having that event in a college stadium of that size is that no matter how big your crowd is, the stadium's always going to at least look half empty. And imagine for that Class A game, if it's two small communities going up for the Class A title, it's going to be a cavernous stadium for that crowd. Infrastructure-wise, they're just fine. They have plenty of points of sale with concessions, plenty of places you can sell merchandise, plenty of restrooms, all that stuff, parking, you name it. The hotels are, are where you need them to be. I'm just not sure there's the support in the community for a WVU or Marshall bid. I'm not sure there's the support of either of those institutions because it's not like they don't have other things to be doing. Most notably, maybe seeing their teams in a neutral site conference championship game, but also they got basketball. They got winter sports that they're dealing with there. So who do you really press in the institution to organize a Super 6 committee if there's just not the desire, the passion to do so? I mean, it's one thing to throw open the doors, but you need to do more than throw open the doors, and that's what 
what Wheeling offers with the Super 6 committee. We'll get to Wheeling more in just a moment. But honestly, I just don't think that's going to be an ideal setting for high school football. I've been I've been to high school games at Mountaineer Field. They used to have the Mohawk Bowl between Morgantown and University there. They did that for a few years. And when I was in college, I went. And it was cool. There were about 15,000 people there. But it was on the lower bowl of the stadium. The upper bowl was, was shut off. And the lower bowl was kind of full and it looked all right. But it still felt kind of sterile because you, know, you were in this big stadium. And despite the fact there was a big crowd, it just felt empty and it felt dead. So I don't know. That, that doesn't strike me as a good high school football environment. Whereas Wheeling Island Stadium can get packed for some of those games. You look at St. Mary's Williamstown. That was pretty full back in 2014. The AAA games tend to draw well also. One that I think could gain some steam is the Greenbrier. And it's far away. And that's what would rule out Marshall, I think, as well, because it's in kind of a remote corner of the state. That would be difficult to justify that. But the Greenbrier is in an even more remote corner in that southeast corner. Although it has I-64 leading right there, and they've got plenty of parking where they could shuttle people over from the state fairgrounds like they do for the Greenbrier Classic. Not to mention they have an infrastructure of people on hand at the Greenbrier and a staff that knows how to stage and gather volunteers for a big sporting event. So I think they could do that. They've got Houston Texans training camp now. Before that, they had the Saints. The New Orleans Pelicans have trained at the Greenbrier. Of course, the Greenbrier Classic PGA event is there. They have the Tennis Stadium and the Tennis Classic. So they know what to do to make an event a big event. They also have a hotel with a shopping area, a casino there, so there's something to do for people between the games. That's an asset that Wheeling has, and I think it really just depends on the facility. If they build a facility that's about five to 10,000 seats with the capability of adding more if you decide to do that for a scrimmage for the training camp, or even like the WVU spring game that they hosted a few years ago, that was a temporary facility that they had for that, but they can create a venue almost from scratch if they need to, and if they put something together like that, then I think they stand a decent chance to be considered at the very least if they so want it, because you know that things get done and they get done quickly down there. And it would not be hard for that infrastructure that you would need, the people, the volunteers, the parking. It would not be hard for that to come together. They can bring that together quickly because they do for golf every year. If you've not been down to that event, it's fairly well run, though I don't think it's what it used to be. It used to be a better event four or five years ago, I'll say. So I really think that that's a site that could be an emerging site as time goes on. What about an outside-the-box pick as far as a nice high school football stadium? You know what? I've always liked Cabell Midland High School because if they wanted to go on camp, and have a school hosted, which I don't think they do. I think Cabell Midland Stadium is very nice. It's an artificial field. They've got plenty of space. The parking's abundant, and it's right there. You've got the school nearby. Part of the problem is it's not really close to anything to do. You'd have to go way off-site to go do anything. But I've always thought from a facility standpoint, it was pretty nice. The press box is adequate there, much more adequate, I think, than what you'd find at Wheeling Island Stadium or what you'd find at a lot of other places. That would right now negate the Greenbrier. It would negate Erickson at the very least. Stadium Field probably has an adequate press box for it. Same with Laidley, but Cabell Midland, I think from a facility standpoint, checks a lot of boxes. So that, that's just me spitballing. Let's go ahead and check out your feedback on this really quickly. Michael Wolf, and by the way, happy belated birthday, Wolfie, says uh, St. Mary's just for our convenience. Uh, it's a nice new facility. Maybe not big enough for AAA, but why not put it in St. Mary's? Just got as good of a chance as anybody else. Craig Dutton says other towns will have trouble getting the needed support and volunteers to get the job done. Wheeling has done an excellent job at doing this. Even though it's easy to put point fingers at Wheeling for the field conditions, many more fingers get 
get pointed at other towns are hosting if something or a number of things don't go right. And Craig at least has the vision here to see that it takes a lot of support and volunteers and people behind the scenes to make this kind of an undertaking happen. It's not just the facility, it's not just the venue, it's about the committee and it's about the volunteers and, and Wheeling's had an excellent Super 6 committee. Uh, so I think any bid would have to have that infrastructure strongly in place or at least evidence of that infrastructure is there. Right after you get the desire to host an event like this and right after you have the facility, thing one needs to be a volunteer infrastructure. Brandon Gregory says once South gets turf, it needs to be there. I think if South ever does get turf, it would vault very high on the list of potential places for it to be. But again, I'm not sure that there's the desire to put turf in at South for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of other things at Erickson All Sports Facility that they want to finish first. It's still a very unfinished facility in a lot of regards when you get over there. And Brian Cox says stadium field after the visitor section is complete. Says we only lost the bid for it last time because there were no hotels in the general proximity. Now there is. Like I said, Brian, the hotels are there, but uh, you just don't have enough places to park, and it's a, that neighborhood's only gotten worse over the years. So uh, you heard my feelings on it, and those are yours. I think that if a school district wanted to go outside the box and they wanted to do something with taxpayer money that would bring in some revenue for the community, a forward-thinking community, a forward-thinking school district, I think would splurge a little bit on a stadium if you could start from scratch and build the stadium that you would want or need. But I think a forward-thinking school district could build a stadium that's capable of hosting this event and put that in a school levy or even raise the funds out of a separate levy. You're looking at a cost of probably 10 to $25 million, in my opinion, to do this. I know that there's been some criticism in the past for school districts that spent a lot of money on football stadiums. This happened in Texas a few years ago. McKinney ISD, the McKinney School District, they spent almost $70 million on a stadium that's ready for football. It opened in 2017. It's 12,000 seats. They already cut corners and saved money on it by using more steel than concrete. And people were critical of McKinney when this happened, as I'm sure they will be again in 2019 when the Prosper School District in Texas opens a new $51 million football stadium. But here's the thing to consider. You have that stadium in a school district where there are several teams that use it, so everyone uses it rather than having to fund two or three or four stadiums, so it has something like that going for it. But this year, McKinney ISD School District in Texas will host the Division II National Championship. I know this because I'm also the voice of Division II Notre Dame College. Those had been held in Kansas City for a few years, and Kansas City had the contract for this year. They were hosting that at the stadium where Sporting KC, that's the MLS team, uh, Major League Soccer, that is where they'd host the Division II Championship. But they were doing resurfacing there this year, and they elected to do the resurfacing rather than host the event and and then do the resurfacing. So they gave up the event to do the resurfacing once soccer ended. So that put this year's championship up for bid. And McKinney, with that stadium, 12,000 seats, has the facilities and the infrastructure you would expect out of a $70 million stadium, locker rooms, bathrooms, concession stands. They won the bid. So here's a high school stadium that's the perfect size for Division II final and is going to host. So you build a stadium like that, you never know what kind of things you could get. Maybe your town has a big festival and you want to lure big concerts and big entertainment. There are a lot of entertainers for ten to $20,000. And you imagine if Parkersburg had something like that, what that could be for the Parkersburg Homecoming Festival. You know, you'd be bringing in a classic rock band, not to just some area by the flood wall where there's a stage. You bring them into a stadium and have people sit down and watch the show. You could bring in two or three shows a summer like that if you wanted. Even bigger dollar items if you could land a bigger artist. You'd have graduations there. You could, I'm sure you'd 
you'd probably have soccer and football there. But you build one facility like that in your community, and you can use it for a number of things. So a forward-minded school district, I think, would build a stadium that would check off a lot of the Super 6 boxes. We'll get to what those are in a minute. And I think if you can check off those boxes and have the community support, you could bid, You could get this. I don't think Wheeling is airtight with the Super 6. I don't think it's as, air, as much of a lock as it was 10, 15 years ago. People start to see that Wheeling is, and they've hosted this for 25 years, that the committee's starting to get uh, a little up there in years, and unless they infuse some fresh blood, which probably needs to happen sooner than later, they're going to have trouble maintaining that level of excellence. They're going to have trouble maintaining the level of service they provided for people in the past, and they're going to have trouble making the event the successful event that it has been, unless they get some fresh blood in there. If a school district and a community and or a community work together to put up a new stadium, you could probably do a reasonable stadium for in, in the neighborhood of 10 to $25 million, I really do think, and take this away from Wheeling. Here are the things that Wheeling has going for it. It's got parking, um, because it's next to Wheeling Casino. There's plenty of places to park between the two. Hotels are abundant in the Wheeling area, between Wheeling, St. Clairsville, and, and even the casino on the island. Problem is with Wheeling, a lot of the hotels they rely on are in Ohio, so that money's going out of state, which I don't think is ideal. It's got good access to the highways. You're not far from the interstate in Wheeling. The casino's right there, makes for something to do. Uh, whether it's just somewhere to go get warm, there's food there, you can go get a meal, you can go play the slots, you can go play some cards, you can go watch the Greyhound racing, or you can go to a sports bar and post up and watch some college games if you want. But either way, there's something to do right there, uh, which I think is very key for this event for people that are going to stay for all three games. But it's got some things against it, like Charleston. Wheeling Island is a bad neighborhood. Like the area around Laley Field, Wheeling Island's a bad neighborhood. It's not centrally located, so a lot of people have a long way to go uh, to get to Wheeling Island. Right now, the field is an issue, which is why we're talking about this, because the field has been much maligned at the Super 6. Since last year's Super 6, the Ohio River came up twice over the field at Wheeling Island Stadium, once in February, and then it happened again in midsummer. The river came up, and there was just a thin layer of water on the field, but even an inch or two for a couple days deposits river mud and silt and who knows what else. There could be some bacteria from floody rivers that you wouldn't want your kids playing on or around. So it's not clean, for one. It's pretty muddy-looking. You know, aesthetically, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good to see players on it when you look at the pictures from Williamstown, you'd think they had played out in your backyard because Williamstown's white uniforms were gray by the end of the night on a turf field. I've never seen people end up so dirty after a football game on a turf field. And then again, the press facilities are not ideal. They have adequate space for the Metro News television broadcast and the Metro News radio broadcast, but they can't accommodate the number of print journalists that usually want to cover or should cover a state championship. They have to make some compromises, and I'll get to that in a minute as well. So it is not a perfect site. It's going to be a challenge, I think, over the next next decade for that Super 6 committee as they start to get up in ages, as they start to turn over, they look to new people to come and help and lead. It's going to be a challenge for them to carry that torch, to convince people that their experience is the best experience possible. They're going to need to find that second generation of volunteers to carry this event from where it's been to where it is now. Because I'll say this, the volunteers are what makes that event fantastic. They're able to assign a volunteer to every different aspect of that. They assign one person specifically to be the point person for that team. So when your coach or your team needs anything from the Super 6 committee, here 
is your person to call, they'll run it down for you. And that's their job all week leading up to the Super 6 and that weekend. And that takes a lot of commitment. And they have people that are good enough to do that, that are team marshals, I think that's what they call them, team hosts. They do a good job to take care of teams coming up to Wheeling Island Stadium, coming up to that event. The locker room facility, the players get in and the, their, their lockers are, are made up like they're in the NFL or college. And that's something that they pride themselves on too. They do a good job to turn that field around for three games in about 36 hours. Credit to the folks in Wheeling, they have run a good event. Now the problem is that is a lot of those people have run the event, have been on the Super 6 Committee since it started up there. They need to find that second generation of volunteers to maintain what they do well. Because there will be challengers, as there always are, especially in the first decade, there were a lot of challengers. Parkersburg had a strong chance for a while to get it, or so a lot of people thought. I know when Dave Poe was a sports editor of the Parkersburg News and Sentinel, he was really pushing for it. Didn't quite happen, but there is the possibility to go and take this away from Wheeling. This is not a perfect site by any stretch, and I've detailed the problems with it. Unless somebody steps up to usurp Wheeling from their throne... It is and should be Wheelings. So what does an ideal Super 6 site need to have? It needs to have capacity to seat anywhere from 10 to 20,000 people, in my opinion, although five and some expandability will do. The willingness to bring in some temporary bleachers if they anticipate a big crowd. It needs to have adequate concessions and restrooms for crowds of that size. Adequate points of sale if you want to sell merchandise or souvenirs. Adequate standing room to gather here and there if that's how you choose to watch the football game and places to do that. It needs to have adequate hotel facilities nearby within drivable distance and reasonable distance to the area. The locker room facilities have to be big enough and should ideally be nice enough. It's not going to be listed on any list or any rubric, but I think it should be a special place to play football. It should be somewhere that's better than just another high school football field, especially if you're from the small schools and you haven't gone there very often. And I think the press facilities need to be ample to allow everyone that wants to cover the game in the way that they choose to be able to cover the game. That includes the press box. That includes hospitality areas. That includes the broadcast booths, and that includes the ability to have access to post-game interviews of coaches and players. I may be missing a few things, but right there, I think those are the basics that any Super 6 venue needs to have. If you've got entertainment options nearby, that's even better. If you've got restaurants and hotels within walking distance, that would be even better, but there just aren't a lot of places to check those boxes as we speak. Again, that poll, 58% of you said move elsewhere, 42% of you said stay in Wheeling, 55 votes, and I I don't disagree with you that it should maybe move elsewhere, but that leads to the second question and the much tougher to answer question of if not wheeling, then where? And there just really is not a front runner for that alternate site. Speaking specifically of the press facilities, and I really didn't want to bring this up on this podcast, but I will. For those of you that know me and follow me on Twitter, I posted something on Monday of last week about the SSAC's media form to cover this event, to get media credentials for this event. There were three categories on the credential. One was sideline, and an even detailed school yearbook, school photographer, bloggers, and TV. That gave you no access to the press box or the press trailer, which I think is free food. And it's at the very least a place to get warm because if you've never been up there, it's usually pretty cold. The second is press box, working print media only. It's limited to temper game. And the second is press, which means you don't get any press box, but I think you just get a press pass. And it doesn't specifically say you can go on the sidelines, but it says you can come and get food and do whatever you want. And the fact that they got so many people that want to cover this event and no place to put them is a problem. The problem is not with the press wanting to cover the event. The problem is with the facility for not being adequate enough. And I think that's something that the SSAC hasn't realized with this site. I will also go as far as to say the Charles 
Charleston Civic Center for basketball as well. Because you have more people that are interested in covering your event and more outlets, that does not mean that they're going to have to cram into the existing space. That's not what that should mean. What that should mean is you should make more space for these people. These are people that are out there to cover the kids in this area and tell the stories of the student athletes in this state. They're not people that are out there to look for a free seat to a high school football championship event or a free meal or free drinks or whatever it is that you think they're going to take from you. That's not what they're doing. They're there to tell a story. It's interesting to me to see how the SSAC has taken such a forward-thinking approach on bloggers and people who run websites. Uh, For instance, you've heard Kerry Patrick on this show before. He's a good friend of mine. He has depthchartwc.com. I run his ad on here because I want people to go there. I do that as a favor to Kerry, and he doesn't even know I do it. That having been said, he's well taken care of at the state basketball tournament. His credentials there, he has a spot on Press Row. But what they've had to do is they've had to limit what they can do for radio. And I don't know how much of that is the SSAC and how much of that is Metro News. I'll get to the Metro News side of this in just a minute. But if your venue is no longer capable of housing all the media, then change the venue or change something about the venue. And there's been no effort whatsoever to rectify this. I understand if you don't want a lot of people walking around your sidelines, that's different because game action is happening. There could be collisions down there. You could hurt a student athlete. You could hurt a bystander a number of bad things could happen if too many people are roaming the sidelines at an event like the Super 6. But if people want to sit in a press box or on press row and cover this event, they certainly ought to be able to do that. Every baseball postseason venue adds auxiliary press. You can just tell that they fashioned it in an auxiliary press box uh, if you really know what to look for. That's what sporting venues do, and that's what events do. They make the venue fit the needs of the event. They don't go the other way and tell those wanting to cover it, oops, sorry. That's like John Candy in National Lampoon's Vacation telling them Wally World's closed today. You shouldn't have to get to the end of the season and all of a sudden find out you can't cover your team because, oops, there's just not enough room in the press box. That's asinine to be quite frank about it. Where this hits me particularly the hardest is that they make allowances for newspapers. They make allowances for TV to get them what they need. They make allowances for bloggers. They're even open to bloggers, which I'm not knocking it. It's a good thing, but that's where I would expect forward-thinking minds to go. But the SSAC isn't always forward-thinking when it comes to press. That's not where I would expect their mind to go, and they do. But radio stations, they really knock radio stations that want to cover the event. On the top of their credential form, before all three of those options I mentioned earlier, sound Press Box Press. It flat out says radio stations who covered high school games will be given general admission tickets only. General admission tickets. Not even a press pass. Not even a proper credential to show that you're a member of the working press. And I get it. If you're from a small community, a small school, you're probably someone that is just as fine to sit in the stands and watch an event like that as a fan who's been there all year. And maybe you're just a fan on the air. There's a lot of people that cover high school sports in the state, whether through print, online, or on the radio especially, that are lay people. They work regular jobs and they do this on the side. A lot of them are very good at it. A lot of them are very good radio people and very good reporters and, and take their time to put out publications. Sam Blizzard put out a great big publication at the beginning of the year, a pigskin preview for the entire state with capsules of all 116 West Virginia teams. There's a lot of great lay people in this state that aren't journalists by trade, but they do a good job chronicling these teams. So why not take care of people like that? Why not take care of that radio crew that has been there for all 13 games leading up to that point, and now they're being treated like a regular fan? They've given something to the program. They've given something to the community. If they want to cover the event with what they're able to do, let them at least sit 
in a press box or have a pass to where they can walk on the sidelines. There are a lot of ways to cover this event now that there didn't used to be. I know this personally because I have covered this event without radio rights. What we have done covering two of these on Light Rock 93R, we have posted Facebook updates. We have done Facebook Live videos pregame, halftime, and postgame. We've gathered interviews for our programming at the station. There are a lot of ways to cover this event if you're in radio that don't constitute calling the game. And the same thing goes for basketball. There's a media room where you get interviews with coaches and players, and you don't have access to that unless you have the proper credential because it is underneath the grandstand on the on the floor level of the Coliseum, the Civic Center Coliseum. So you have to have that credential to get there. It's a little less tight at the Super 6 because they open the gates and anybody can go out on the field and eventually you can get what you need, but you need the access sooner than later, and why deny somebody that? I know some people would be fine with a general mission ticket. I'm not one of those people. I'm a media member. I work hard to cover these events to the best of my ability, And if I want to go, I want to go and have the access that I need and deserve and the access that other press members get. That's not fair to me. It's not fair to other radio stations. I mean, sure, there are a lot of them that that might want to go and just relax and enjoy the game and yell and scream their head off. You know, and that's fine. But but for me, I want to gather sound, I want to interview people, and, and I want the ability to do that and maybe even be privy to a place where I can go get stats, where I can maybe go get a, a bottle of water if I want to drink or grab a sandwich or something like that if I've been working there all day. It might be kind of nice to have that. Last year at the state basketball tournament, I was treated worse than I've ever been treated at any event I've ever covered in my decade-plus career in media. And I've worked in a, in a few different areas doing a few different things. I've never been treated worse as a media member than I was of the 2018 High School Boys State Basketball Tournament. I walked in and expected a media pass with a lanyard and said I was handed a general admission ticket. And my question of that was, as I mentioned before, that if you don't have that badge with a lanyard, you don't get into the media room. The whole reason I was there was not to sit and watch the game from court side. It was to go get sound after the game. And without that lanyard, without that credential, you can't get back to where that's taking place. So I won't mention the person involved, but it was the daughter of a coach I knew. I was commiserating my situation with a coach's family that I knew. And the daughter of that coach said, well, here, you can have this. I found it on the floor and handed me the credential that she had found on the floor. And that's how I got access to the media room last year at the state basketball tournament. I get it at the state basketball tournament. There's not a lot of space, which I have argued earlier. If there's not the space at the venue, then maybe change something about the venue to make more space. That argument aside, I get that there's not the space there right now. Just give me the credential. I'll go sit in the stands if I have to. Give me the credential so that I can get to the interviews that I need to get to the whole reason I'm in Charleston in the first place. On top of that, if I'm covering the event from the floor, the bathroom's on the other side of the arena from where the interview room is. I have to have access to get to that hallway as well. I brought that up with a couple people including Bernie Dolan, the SSAC executive director, told him my issue, then my issue got resolved, told him it was resolved, never told him how it was resolved, so that's probably on me, but I tweeted my frustration about this at the SSAC, never got a response back, and all I really wanted was a conversation. I wasn't trying to call them out just to throw shade on them, I wanted a conversation because I think that's where they fall short is listening to the press, what do we need, why do we need it, who needs what, don't be out of touch when it comes to the needs of those who are trying to cover your sport, make it easier for us to do our job. Most Most of us don't want free access or free food or free this or that. We just want to be able to have the access we need to cover your kids and and to provide the coverage for our community and for our our followers and our listeners and our subscribers that that we want, that we know that they deserve and that we know that they want. So don't make it difficult for us. And as a radio station, all we're able to do is gather sound because Metro News holds the exclusive rights to these state championship events. This is not how it's done in other states.
states. In other states, there is a statewide network. And in, in some states, I'm sure maybe they have exclusivity. But in many other states, local radio is allowed to broadcast the state championship game. I haven't commented on this in the past because I do have a relationship with Metro News. I'm a freelance reporter for Metro News during high school football season. I provide them a weekly report. In addition to that, I like the individuals that work for Metro News because they're professionals that I respect. I have good relationships with them. This isn't about them. This is about the corporate structure that put this into place to where local radio has the door shut in their face, basically, when the biggest events of the year roll around. I've not commented on this a whole lot in the past because I understand it is what it is, but you know what it is? It sucks. As a broadcaster, I want to be able to do the big games. And if I'm working for a station or I'm covering a team or have been covering a team that gets to play in those big games, I want to go cover those games too. That's part of the reason why I love my job. And to be denied the opportunity to do that when the season's at its most critical point, that's cruel, it hurts, it sucks, there's nothing good about it. It does not feel good. It does not make me want to live and work in this state in the long term, to be quite honest. And it's unfair, because if you do this for any length of time, how many times will you ever have a chance to be part of a winner? Maybe not many. And for some of these broadcasters, that might be their only crack at doing a game like that. So it's a real simple solution, I think. If you have the facility that's capable of housing multiple broadcasts, you have them do the broadcast, but you also force them to do the network spots that Metro News has. Metro News has availabilities for network spots, and they have availabilities for local spots. If you make them carry the network spots, and then if they don't ban them from doing it next year, the next time they want to, but make them carry those network spots and leave them the local availabilities, they can still do the broadcast that they had intended to do and, and that they deserve to do. But they're the only station that can carry it. You can't simulcast it anywhere. And I think one or two stations you know, doing this per game, I don't think that's going to be a cut into Metro News's revenue, or I don't think it's going to be a cut into their listener base. A lot of people are still going to go opt for the Metro News broadcast if you're from a neutral area. They do a good job. The broadcasts sound good. I'm not saying they don't, but why shut out the people that have been there the whole way for you? The lion's share of games in this state are broadcast by local stations, mom-and-pop broadcasters. There are some professionals that work for some of those companies, myself being one of them, and while Metro News owns a lot of stations in the state, if you were to add up the number of games that are broadcast on the radio in this state, most of them are broadcast by non-Metro News stations, and by Metro News I mean West Virginia Radio Corporation, and that's where people are getting the bulk of their live broadcasts. And I will say this, Metro News at least provides a link to those broadcasts during the season, and that's fine, but if we're good enough to cover this during the season, we ought to be good enough to cover it in the postseason and in the finals when this matters. I've covered Parkersburg South basketball for four years. I'm going into my fifth season now. The Patriot Boys have made the state tournament all four years that our stations had the rights to do their games. I have done zero state tournament games because of these policies. I think they need to change, and I think there needs to be that local flavor to preserve that local history. But also, it's a sign of respect. So when you go to hand me a, a general admission ticket and call that a media pass, but don't give me the access I deserve, I take that as a slap in the face. And I think any other working professional would in this state. I think if you ask those Metro News staffers to be honest, if they were in my shoes, how would they feel if they were handed a general admission ticket instead of the credential that would allow them to do the job that they were there to do? They would also feel slapped in the face. I think a lot of people feel muzzled because, honestly, when I tweeted that, I had more response from out-of-state media members being outraged at the situation than I did from in-state media members. And I followed by, and I follow a lot of in-state media members. And I, I know that there were probably a lot that may have supported what I said, but either weren't moved to say anything about it or didn't feel that they had the foot to stand on to support my stance. I go back to that state tournament experience. I wasn't asking for a banner and a steak dinner. You know, a simple, you know, someone hand me a lanyard with the credential I needed and smile 
Kyle, welcome to Charleston. That's all I needed. That's all I want in that situation. I wasn't even covering this year's Super 6. Didn't plan on it before this, and I didn't cover it in person. But I said what I said for those that will have this situation in the future, for those that will face this in the future. Because I imagine that I'll have the same problem if I go to cover the state basketball tournaments. And if things don't change, I don't really have a desire to go cover those tournaments. And I'm leaning toward not doing it, to be quite honest. And that sucks because that's not fair to the kids that deserve every bit of coverage that they get. I don't know. The SSAC, by punishing journalists, is only punishing the kids. That's making it tough for us to do our job. In lieu of awards, I want to close this episode and this season with the top five stories of the year. Uh, there are a lot of good ones in this area. These will be top five Mid-Ohio Valley stories of the year. How about number five? Parkersburg South with a seven-win season, the most under Mike Eddy, and they not only get back to the playoffs for the first time since 2014, they host a playoff game for the first time in more than a decade. Unfortunately, it didn't go well for the Patriots, or at least it didn't end well. They got a 21-0 lead, lost that when Hedersville scored 28 straight points, scored, got a two-point conversion, and thought they had the lead for good, but with 19 seconds left, Hedgesville ran a kickoff back for a touchdown and handed Parkersburg South a heartbreaking 35-29 loss. But either way, a good season for South. They bounced back from a 1-2 and two start to the season, and they won six straight before running into problems with PHS in their final game of the year and then running into problems with Hedgesville in the postseason. But a good year for Parkersburg South. Number four, how about the Magnolia win over Wheeling Central in the final week of the regular season? Central was ripe for an upset. They were without Curtis McGee, the starting quarterback. Magnolia had a bye week. It was senior night. They had two weeks to get ready. They play the game of their lives. So Magnolia knocking off Central number four on my list. Number three, the Class A runners-up in Williamstown. And like I said, they had a great season. They had some great individual performances from guys like Carter Haynes, Donathan Taylor. The defense was good. They created a lot of takeaways. Number two is one we haven't talked about since early in the season. How about Brenton Strange going to Penn State? Brenton Strange, before the season started, narrowed his list of finalists from, to a, from about 17 or 18 to, to 8. Of course, Strange, the Parkersburg High School tight end, very talented athlete, somebody that was widely recruited, offered by about a dozen and a half schools, and made his final selection to Penn State fairly early in the season. What that allowed him to do is that allowed him to turn out those distractions and focus on the Big Reds. And unfortunately, the Big Reds didn't have the season that they thought they would because they were dealing with injuries, one of them being strangers. But they still made it to the state quarterfinals before they ran into a good Martinsburg team. They gave Martinsburg a game, and other than Spring Valley, maybe were the only ones to give them a game in this postseason. The Brenton Strange's commitment to Penn State definitely a big story in this area because it's not often that this area puts out a player to a power five school, much less a skill player. So I think uh, the future's bright for Brenton Strange. We wish him the best of luck as he goes to Penn State. And the number one story of the year in this area, Parkersburg Catholics resurgence and turnaround. They were 0-8 with just a dozen players on their roster at the end of the 2017 season. But with most of those same players around and then a few more that they've been able to recruit to get up to 18, they went 9-1. and one. They went to the playoffs. Their only loss in the regular season being a loss to Williamstown where that one just got out of hand early. But Parkersburg Catholic won the games they were supposed to win with a schedule they had, which they admitted wasn't the strongest schedule in the world after an 0-8 season. But as Coach Lance Benier says, we won the games that are scheduled. I don't know what more we can do. And he's right. There's not a lot more they could have done at that point. I think he, as a second-year head coach, probably learned a lesson about scheduling, and, and and that's maybe to not schedule based on what you had, but what you anticipated. 
anticipate having the next year, and there may be more people that are willing to schedule them now than there were when they were 0-8 and they had to forfeit a couple games, one for the IEI fire and one for numbers. But that resurgence of Parkersburg Catholic, the pride that was restored in that community and, and in that school, definitely the number one story in this area. They actually hosted a home game on campus this year for the first time ever. That was a big event, and they did well with that and well to make that a big event. And then later in October, their game with Williamstown was on live local TV. Twelve months before, that would have been an unheard of concept, having Parkersburg Catholic football on TV after being 0-8, but they came into that game unbeaten. There was a demand for that game, and they had earned the right to have it on TV. Again, that's part of that resurgence and the respect that they'd earned. I'll be interesting to see what happens with Catholic and Benegar's third year, onward and upward. Where do they go from here? Honorable mention, Ritchie County succeeds under head coach Rick Hawk. This was a tough one to leave off the top five, by the way, because they went to the playoffs under Hot and gave Mount View a game and led that game into the fourth quarter before bowing out late. Hunter America's big season at Doddridge County. I think he's going to get more attention for statewide awards than Class A players usually garner. Doddridge County back in the playoffs with an unbeaten season, and uh, they went all the way to the state semifinals before Wheeling Central shut them down. Tyler consolidated back in the playoffs this year. A good run for Ryan Walton's team, and <laughs> I think you can notice the theme. Once again, a team that was taken out by Wheeling Central, and River going on a resilient run. Their numbers were way down with some injuries and some other things they had going on, but they go all the way to the playoffs with a 5-5 five and five record before they bow out against Lucas. Uh, that was a team that had about a dozen and a half players. They were battling injuries and illness, but they made it last and they finished the season, so River's resilient run uh, also on this honorable mention. But the top story of the year, Parkersburg Catholics resurgence and turnaround from winless to 9-1 of the playoffs. That's the top Mid-Ohio Valley story of the year. A sincere thank you to all of you who've listened to the podcast all season long. Uh, this is something that I wasn't planning on it for very long beforehand. It was kind of a spur-of-the-moment thing. I thought about it, and then I thought, you know what, let's do it. And the next week, the podcast was birthed. So here it is. I had some ideas for how I would do it, but I want to thank all of you who listened, who supported, who encouraged me along the way, who liked the Facebook page, who voted in the polls, who responded and left your feedback so I could talk about it on the show, gave me things to talk about and ideas to kick around. Uh, this was for you. This wasn't for me that I, I, I did this show. I have enough radio work as it is. I don't need any more outlets to hear myself talk, but this is just an area that we, we could share opinions, you know, and I plan to do this next year too. Uh, in case you're wondering. Uh, if I'm covering football in this area, I, I definitely plan to, if I haven't been shut out after what I said about the SSAC, uh, I definitely plan to be doing this podcast again because, again, this is just an area where you can interact. You, know, you leave things on Facebook and we'll talk about it on the program and and, we, and this can be a back and forth. I like the venue for that. Don't forget, like us on Facebook, like us on iTunes, follow us and subscribe on iTunes, rate us and review us there, listen to us on SoundCloud as well. Again, a very hearty thank you to all of you for everything that you've done all season to promote, to like, to encourage this show. My name is Eric Little. Thank you for joining us today and all season long on the Eric Little High School Football Podcast. We'll hit the hardwoods and spring and summer rolls around and then we'll be right back at it next August before you know it. Take care and we'll talk to you down the road. This has been the Eric Little High School Football Podcast. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and vote in our weekly poll. Come back next week for another new episode and thanks for listening.